What's your name? Josh Wetzel. What's your job and how long have you held it? I'm the radio announcer for the Rochester Red Wings and I've held it since uh, the 2003 season. On your Twitter bio, you asked the question, how'd you call that one? What's the story behind that? That comes from Stan and Stu Clyburn, the former manager and pitching coach brother combo that the Red Wings had for a few years. And they would say that phrase to me, how'd you call that one? Uh, they would say that to me minimum a dozen times a day, I would say. At least, I mean, some days maybe 50 times a day. Like literally that would be the way they would say hello to me every time they saw me. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Josh Wetzel. I guess we're going to have to ask him how he called that one numerous times yeah. over the length of this podcast. We will learn about how getting sick in high school ended up starting his broadcasting career, which is now going on 25 years, if my math is correct. What it was like when he made his major league debut, broadcasting the game, and Mariano Rivera made history, and much more. Josh's Unite, today on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. So what I was thinking about this the other day, I need to get to know some of the broadcasters from the International League. Most people listening to this podcast don't know this, but for my mom and the others, there's two different AAA leagues. I'm in the Pacific Coast League. Josh Wetzel is in the International League. And other than the All-Star Game and the one-game National Championship game, we never crossed paths, and I wanted to change that. And so I asked Tim Haggerty who I should get from the International League, who'd be a good radio guy to get, and he gave me like 10 names, and then he finally got around to you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, he was the first one on the list. And so if this podcast sucks, it's all Haggerty's fault. But uh, again, uh, thank you for joining me. Yeah, Tim and I did the, uh, let's see, 2009 AAA All-Star game together in Portland, Oregon, back when Portland had a team and the, there was no press box. We broadcast the, the game from outside there. I don't know if you ever did a game there in Portland in that old configuration they had, but you, you were not in a booth. You were literally outside broadcasting the game. All right, I'm going to give the background for Josh. He was at Albany in 1995. That's the South Atlantic League. He was at Kinston. That's the Carolina League, 96 through 99. Three years at AA Binghamton and then AAA Rochester since 2003. Also calls the games for the University of Buffalo men's basketball. He was named the broadcaster of the year in 2015 by Baseball Digest. So an impressive background. I love it. Um, a lot of similarities for us, not just because the name is Josh, but I first want to ask you, you grew up in Kansas. Why'd you like the Dodgers? Well, that's a, a little bit of a long story, but it was kind of a family tradition. Um, my, uh, my dad's dad was a huge Cardinals fan. 
And so my dad and his brothers and their mom, even my grandmother, started rooting for the Dodgers kind of as a lark to irritate their father, who Cardinals and Dodgers had a pretty good rivalry back in those days. And then later on in the the mid-50s, my dad's middle brother, uh, my uncle, was a really good uh, high school pitcher. And well, they didn't have high school baseball then, but he was a great Legion pitcher. And he signed with the Dodgers out of high school uh, when they were still the Brooklyn Dodgers at that point. He was with them when they went from Brooklyn to L.A. And so that kind of strengthened the bond, I think, between the Wetzel family and the Dodgers. My uncle could have signed for some other teams for more money, but he made the, as it turns out, kind of a bad decision signing with the Dodgers because they were they were pretty loaded. But uh, that kind of cemented the deal. And so uh, we just grew up Dodgers fans and because it was a family tradition. I, unlike my father, you know, rooted for the Dodgers because of my dad, and uh, and it became this family tradition. So that's how it kind of started. Where were you when Kirk Gibson hit the home run off Dennis Sackers Lane, 1988? In my living room. Yep. In fact, my my uncle, who pitched in the Dodgers minor league system, was in the living room with us watching the game. Have you read my book about the 1988 Dodgers? You know what I have, and I need to get that though. I'm reading a book right now about the '81 Dodgers that came out. Uh, I knew, I knew you had written that. I should read that. That I'm sure it's great. Well, we're going to cancel this podcast. We're done. We can't do this. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, okay. So I wanted to talk about the Dodgers because it leads into what happened to you in high school. Let, let's start off before you got sick. If it's your freshman year in high school, if the guidance counselor had said, Josh, what are you going to do with your life? What would have been your answer around freshman year of high school? I would have been pretty, uh, pretty uncertain about what I was going to do. I think in the back of my mind, I wanted to pursue something like this, but I had absolutely no idea how to go about doing that. Uh, but yeah, this is something that was interesting to me, uh, working in broadcasting. But as a freshman in high school, I mean, I had no clue what I was going to do. So as we get to, I think it was your senior year, if my research is right, what symptoms did you start to have? And when did you start to feel like something is not normal here? Yeah, so the, the summer before my senior year, I was coughing a lot having some uh, breathing issues. And uh, I, now I had asthma growing up. So it was just kind of assumed that maybe that I was having some more asthma symptoms. But as it progressively got worse and worse, and these, I was coughing more and more, I eventually went to the doctor. They did an x-ray, didn't look great. And then I had a, uh, a CT scan and that looked worse. And so that started me down the path of of having a couple of surgeries. I had my right lung removed, had chemotherapy, radiation therapy, the whole thing. So it was a, a pretty rough situation my senior year of high school going through that. But I was diagnosed with a, ultimately a ganglioneuroblastoma, which is a, a form of cancer. I had a, a football-sized tumor in my chest, and they had to remove – people wondered, did they remove just part of your lung? No, they removed the entire lung. And, and took it off the back wall of my heart and everything. So it was pretty extensive surgery I eventually had in Houston and, uh, and a ton of chemotherapy and, and all that went along with that. So it was a, it was a pretty ugly ordeal, but, but fortunately everything turned out pretty well. So to this, to this day, does that mean that you basically have half the ability to, to breathe the way that most other people do? I, I, I think basically it does. Now, the good news is uh, your lung will expand a little bit. So I would like to think that I have a little bit more than 50% capacity compared to the normal or average person, but I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I, I don't think there's any doubt that I get a little bit uh, more winded easily than most, but uh, hopefully I've compensated at least a little bit. But yeah, it's, it's not a great deal. Well, I don't want to make it light of this, 
but yeah. I'm glad that you're not in the Pacific Coast League with the heavy right. elevation because there's yeah. seriously there's plenty of people that have too healthy lungs and it becomes an issue in, in this elevation. Well, my my parents live in Colorado. I don't know. I was actually born in Colorado, but uh, you know when I go and visit my parents in Colorado, I do notice the elevation a little bit. In, in some ways, I think maybe though, if I lived at an altitude like that, it it maybe could be a good thing in the long term. If I it might be as if I exercised constantly and maybe built up the cardiovascular system a little bit better. I think maybe I would adapt to it at, at some point, but it, it is it is noticeable when I go visit my parents, for example, just the the altitude. Yeah. Yes, I mean that's that's major surgery. How were you scared? Am I not going to survive this? Am I not going to be able to have a quote normal life? I mean, how how touch and go was it? Yeah. Well, I think it was pretty touch and go, but I, you know, honestly. <sighs> I don't remember some of my emotions in terms of that real well. Uh, I think I think I have a little bit of PTSD about it, to be honest with you. I, I didn't think of it in that way for a long time, but I really do think I I have a little bit of that. I don't I don't remember some stuff that you would think I should remember, but I just think I kind of blocked a lot of it out. But it was a it was a pretty frightening deal. I know you know at one point one of the scariest things. After the uh, the tumor was no, actually before the tumor was removed, um, I had they they were giving me some experimental chemotherapies uh, that didn't even have names. They were they had numbers, and I had an allergic reaction to one, and I stopped breathing. That was actually during the '89 World Series, so they they gave it to me in the ICU because. They thought they said there was a minuscule chance something like that could happen. Well, sure enough, it happened, and I stopped breathing, uh, like completely went out. You know, I was, but they were there and they jumped into action and were able to to start my breathing all over again. So then, you know, we waited another month or so to continue the treatments, and they gave me a a cousin of that chemotherapy treatment, which again had a number to it. And they said, well, nobody who's ever had an allergic reaction to the first one has ever had an allergic reaction to the second one until me. I had the same thing happened again. And I stopped breathing once more due to an allergic reaction to this chemotherapy drug. And that time I didn't pass out, which was even scarier. So I was aware of everything that was going on. That was, that was something out of a nightmare. But, uh, you know, they were able to shoot me full of adrenaline and get me breathing again. Do you stop getting these experimental chemotherapies at this point? Did they finally that, find one that works or what? No, at that point, they're like, we, uh, I think that might have been the point they said, we're going to have to shoot you with a lot of radiation. Like this, we're, we're going to stop with this chemotherapy stuff. And then they gave me a bunch of rounds of radiation therapy. And then eventually, they, uh, we found a doctor in Houston that thought he could, uh, that thought he could remove it. And because most of the doctors, you know, I was getting second and third opinion is that sort of thing. And eventually we found a doctor in Houston that thought he could, could actually remove it. And he did. And, uh, and so that, that basically saved my life. So I've read that there is an organization called the dream factory and some of your high school classmates contacted them, told them your story. Who are these classmates and how did they go about finding the dream factory and making this thing occur? Well, you know, I grew up in a small town in Kansas, and so I had about 120 people probably in my high school class, and we all knew everybody. You know, we all grew up together, and 
uh, two or three of the individuals in my high school class. I, I don't know how they saw. Well, actually, I take that back. I think they, I think they discovered Dream Factory because Dream Factory had a really good association with one of the TV stations in Kansas City, and we got the Kansas City TV stations in my hometown. So I think they saw something on the news uh, concerning the Dream Factory from Kansas City, and so they they contacted the Dream Factory, and everybody I grew up with knew I was a huge Dodgers fan. And, uh, and they orchestrated this trip to Los Angeles in uh, 1990 to go see a couple of Dodgers games and, and meet some of the players. So who'd you meet? Vin, Tommy, players? Who'd you all meet? Yeah. Uh, well, Tim Belcher was the one that, uh, that showed us around. So we went into the clubhouse and met virtually everybody. You know, we went to Lasorda's office, the famous office with, you know, all the autographed photos and everything. And uh, met almost everyone on the team at that point, went up to the press box, met Vin Scully and Don Drysdale, and, and then saw two or three games while we were out there. It was a, it was a pretty crazy experience, and, and it led to some good things. I'm wearing my Vin Scully microphone shirt yeah. for you today. There you go. Uh, which people are not going to be able to see on the podcast, but I wanted you to see it. So did you tell Vin I'm going to take your job one day, old man? <laughs> no, but I, I did get his autograph. I, I, I assume I have that autograph somewhere. Uh, it, it must be at my parents' house. I don't know if I got it on a ball or if I got it on, uh, you know, a piece of paper. Here's how big of a Dodgers fan I was. We, it, the, you know, Belcher's introducing us to everybody, and I knew who everybody was just looking at them. And Belcher, I think, introduced us to the trainer, Bill Bueller, who, I mean, he'd been the Dodger trainer forever. I got the trainer's autograph. You know, I, I was asking the trainer for an autograph. Those, the trainers never get asked for autographs. What other photos or mementos do you have um, from that trip to Los Angeles? Oh, a ton of photos with just uh, the various players. Uh, have an autographed bat uh, back at my parents. Um, that that's pretty much the extent of it. But uh, a lot of great memories for sure. And. It was, it was a fun thing. You know, that fortunately for me was on the back side of this after I had had the tumor removed. So I was able to relax a little bit. I was still getting chemotherapy, uh, but fortunately it happened on the back end after, uh, after it looked like I was going to be okay. So you get back to Kansas, and I've read that you get interviewed by a local radio station about your story. How did, how did they find out about the story and what comes next? Well, Again, I grew up in a really small town, and I was friends with the local sports announcer. I knew him from our local Babe Ruth League. He was a, a coach and, a, and a, an umpire in the league. And so the previous two years while in high school, I had actually hung around with him and kept stats for him. We needed high school basketball games and high school football games. And so I had a relationship with him already, and they, they had a little 30-minute talk show in the mornings once a week. And they were desperate for guests. And so they asked me to, to talk about it when I got back. And uh, I guess I handled myself okay on the air uh, that day during the interview. And maybe later that day or the, the next day, the station manager called me up and he said, you know, Josh, we're hiring a part-time DJ board op for the weekends. We thought you handled yourself well on the air. What would you think about applying for this job? And that kind of gave me the end because I wasn't the sort of person that was going to, you know, call someone up and ask for a job. That just wasn't in my personality, really. I was, I was interested in broadcasting, but again, I had no idea how I was going to do it. And so this gave me such a great opportunity. 
the only way I wasn't going to do it is if I some for some stupid reason would have said no. So I went in and recorded some fake uh, mock newscast and they offered me the job, you know, 30 minutes later. And, and that's how it started. Just board hopping and DJing on the weekends at this little station in my hometown. What kind of music? What was the format? It was a adult contemporary, you know, okay. and this was, this was during, I mean, this radio station, we had the carts, we were playing 45s. We even, you know, we had to queue up the 33s occasionally too. This was a, this was a bare bones type of operation, but it was, it was good training and it, and it really gave me a leg up when I got to University of Kansas a couple of years later because uh, the other students that I was in classes with, they were, you know, they had no experience working at a student radio station, let alone a commercial radio station. And I had done a lot of stuff on the air the previous two, two years at that point. So it really gave me a leg up on, on getting some opportunities that a lot of other kids at that time were not able to get. How good were you? And be honest about you start to play a song and you talk over it and then you finish your thought just as the lyrics begin. Yep. Hit the post. Ramping. I was pretty good. I was. I got to be pretty good at it. I think. Yeah. I think. You know. I. I really enjoyed being a DJ. I think. I would. If it wasn't for the sports side of things, I would have probably pursued something like that. I had fun with it. It's a lot of fun to work in a radio station. I mean, it's a. It's a crazy environment, but it's a lot of fun. I mean, you know that that uh, business isn't doing too well right now, obviously, like so many others. But, but uh, especially at that point in time in the '90s, I think working at radio stations was really, really fun. As a board operator, did I read that you did uh, Kansas City Royals games, that you operated yes. the board for that? Yeah. Uh, I think that's great. There's a guy in our league, Russ Langer. Um, he's with Las Vegas. He went to college here in Albuquerque at UNM, mm -hmm. and he was a board operator for the Dukes games. And then he later okay. became a broadcaster for the Dukes, and now he's with Las Vegas. Um, kind of kind of describe the scene for us. You're inside the studio, and you're doing the board operating of the Royals games, and kind of what are you starting to envision about your future? Well, I don't know. I mean, I always wanted to be a baseball announcer. So uh, that's what I wanted to do. So listening to those Royals games was kind of by osmosis a good training ground because you're listening probably a lot more intently than you would just tuning in as a fan. But at that point in time, you know, I just wanted to get experience. I didn't know where everything would lead. But by the time I, I got through two years of junior college and then two years at the University of Kansas, I got hired at a radio station out in Southwest Kansas, not very far away from Tucumcari, New Mexico, as a matter of fact, out in Liberal. And, uh, and I had the chance to broadcast Jayhawk League uh, baseball games, which is a summer college league. I, I broadcast the Liberal BJs. And that was almost like doing a short season of minor league baseball. So through that experience, I was able to send out a pretty decent tape and land my first professional baseball job how did liberal kansas get its name liberal kansas yeah i you know what i don't know but it, it's a it's an oxymoron because it's certainly not a very liberal town in fact our radio station was owned uh our radio station was owned by the uh the landon family like alf landon uh nancy Cassabon, who was a united states senator for a long time her brother owned the station and uh, their father had had run for president at one point as a Republican. You also did some news anchoring. Is that right? On the yeah. morning news? Yeah, I was the morning news guy slash high school sports slash BJ's announcer. What was your favorite news story that you covered oh, during man. that year or so? 
none of them really. And, you know, I, I didn't – here's the thing. I should have enjoyed that a lot more because it actually was pretty fun. We had a, and we worked – the radio station I worked at was a really good radio station. We, we, uh, we had a great sound. We had a, a cool morning show that I would jump in on. It was a really good radio station. But I so desperately wanted to do professional baseball. That was my sole focus that I didn't enjoy that aspect of the job nearly as much as I should have. That was kind of a mistake on my part. I should have used that to try to broaden my skill set a little bit more than I did. So I hate to admit it, but I probably did not put nearly as much into that aspect of my job as I should have. Well, I appreciate your honesty. And, and I have a feeling that I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Is, is there something that could have happened or almost happened and the butterfly effect would have meant you did not go into baseball. You stayed in news and you became a, you know, you became Lester Holt or you became some, you know, international news correspondent for a radio station or a TV station. Who knows, man? I, it's hard to tell, you know, I could have, you think about those opportunities that you could have had. I mean, one thing that would have changed my life forever, my, uh, my going into my senior year, but the, the summer before my senior year, in, uh, actually, it was my, my last semester. Let me backtrack. My last semester in college, I had to take something like 18 or 21 hours to graduate on time. In other words, graduate in four years. And the way it worked to Kansas, I had to have a class that qualified in two different categories. Like it had to be a history class, but also a non-Western civilization class. And the only, pretty much the only class I could take to get me those hours was some sort of ancient Japanese history class. And after a couple of classes, I, the, I couldn't figure out any way I was going to be able to pass this class. So I, I called my parents and said, look, I think I'm going to drop this class and just graduate, you know, after the summer. And they said, well, why don't you just stick it out? If you, if you fail, who cares, right? And so that's what I did. And I, I somehow managed to pass the class and graduate on time. If I had dropped the class as I was planning on, I would have had to go to summer school and then graduate later. I never would have gotten that job in Liberal, wouldn't have gotten the job in Albany, Georgia. I mean, it would have changed my career completely. So it's, it's funny how that stuff works. For the first job in affiliated ball, Albany Polecats, 1995 Expo, South Atlantic League. By any chance, do you remember what you wrote in the cover letter or anything about the inning that you send on your demo tape in order to get the job? No, I really don't. I, it was a BJ's game, you know, from the Jayhawk League. It might have been, it might have been the NBC World Series, which was a big, big deal at that point. Uh, I'm sure I have that cassette somewhere, but I don't have any clue. I was, I went to the winter meetings. I shouldn't even admit this, but I, <laughs> I told, I told my boss in Liberal that I was going to visit my uncle in Dallas, which was which was true. I had an uncle in Dallas at the time, but the winter meetings were in Dallas. <laughs> so I went to the winter meeting. My aunt and uncle weren't even in town. I stayed at their place, but I went to the winter meetings to interview with a couple of teams and didn't get a job. Then I left Wichita, or then I left Dallas and drove to Wichita and interviewed for a news and sports job at a radio station in Wichita. Mike Kennedy, who still does Wichita State Shockers basketball games, was the guy who interviewed me. The job would have been mine if I wanted to get it. But it wasn't going to be much play-by-play, so I turned it down and went back to Liberal. And then subsequently, somehow this Albany job opened up. It was going to be here's, – here's a nugget for you, Josh. It was going to be Steve Selby's job. 
Really? Steve, Steve Selby had, well, I, I take that back. Steve had moved to Albany when Albany first got a team. He was going to be the Albany Polecats first announcer. But before that season began, he got a job in Huntsville, Alabama. And so Steve never actually broadcast a game in Albany. They wound up having to hire somebody else. But when I started in Albany, Steve still worked, uh, Steve still worked and lived in Albany in the offseason. And he worked at the radio station our games were on. And so I talked to Steve when I first got there. And uh, I was, you know, I didn't know what I was getting into. And I don't think I did a great job probably that first year because I, I sent Steve my stuff later on. He's like, wow, you you've really gotten a lot better from when you were in Albany. I, I must not have impressed him very much in 1995. <laughs> for people who don't know, Steve Silby is currently the broadcaster for the Memphis Redbirds. He's been in Memphis for a long time. He's a um, great dude who's in the Pacific Coast League. Uh, Does a great job. Yeah, he's, he's so smooth. He's just smooth yep. as can be. I don't think he's ever been flustered on the air once in his life. He's, <laughs> he's just smooth Yeah, he's fantastic. He's was, such a great example of how tough this job – I mean, because he's a major league caliber announcer in my mind. There's no question about it. And, you know, he's, he's been doing AAA baseball for a long, long time. But, but you could put him in a major league broadcast booth right now, and he's not going to miss a beat. Yeah, totally agree, 100%, no doubt about it. Um, I was looking at the roster for Albany in 95, and there's quite a few future major leaguers. Brad Fuller, Hiram Boca Chica, Javier Vasquez, a few others – but then there's the Hall of Famer, Vladimir Guerrero, first full season of professional baseball. Must have been age 18 or 19. Tell us about your memories of Vlad. Well, he was, he was a sensational player. Um, one of the things I remember is, is just how great his arm was. Albany had a really big ballpark, and the fence on top of that was something like 18 or 20 feet high. I don't know why they had such a high fence. But Vlad would stand behind first base and guys would dare him and he would throw the ball from the first base line over the fence in left field, which is a pretty insane throw. I'm sure if the Expos management at the time had seen him do that, they would have freaked out. But uh, Vladimir, you know, didn't really speak any English. My Spanish was virtually non-existent and it became very apparent early on that he was the best prospect on the team. And so he was a popular interview target for reporters. And we had a guy on the team named Eddie Acosta who was from Chicago, but he, I believe he was uh, maybe born in Panama. He spoke fluent English and Spanish, had no Spanish accent at all, actually, when he spoke English. And so he would be the interpreter for Vlad when he would do these interviews. And invariably, you know, a reporter would ask a question, Eddie would speak it in Spanish to Vlad. And Vlad, on top of not speaking any English, is incredibly shy. So his response would be, you know, three or four words. And then Eddie would turn around and in English talk for two minutes to the reporter in response. And that happened constantly, constantly. I mean, it, it was comical. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, even, even to this day, Vlad senior has always been very shy and, and um, very little English. Yeah. Um, what are some of your other just memories of the South Atlantic league in 1995? Super hot, I'll tell you that. I mean, really hot. Now, when I when I got that job, I'd really never been east of the Mississippi River. So all of that was really new to me. But again, I had no clue what I was getting into, for the most part, getting that job. But as it turns out, that Albany team was absolutely loaded, as you mentioned. I think there were something like 12 or 14 players 
on that team that eventually played at least a little bit in the major leagues, which is an incredible number from a South Atlantic League team. And yet the team finished something like 20 games under 500. But they were, I think, the youngest team in the league. They had really bad defense. Uh, they had a first-round pick of the Expos named Chris Schwab, who didn't really pan out. But because he was a first-round pick, the Expos had our manager bat him second every day because they wanted him to get extra at-bats. And so Aram Bocachica would lead off a game and get on base, and then Chris Schwab would strike out. So he would kind of mess up the first inning right away. That happened a lot. But the South Atlantic League that year was really, really loaded with talent. I think if you go back and look over the last 25 years at the South Atlantic League, I would be surprised if there's another season where they've had the talent that was in the league as in 1995. I mean, every team pretty much had a guy, at least one guy who spent significant time in the major leagues. And, and there were some superstars in there. Vlad Guerrero was not the only one. I mean, just up the road in Macon, Andrew Jones was considered the best prospect in all of baseball. So it was a, it was a pretty good introduction to minor league baseball, just from a a standpoint of talent, but it was, it was hot, man. It was, (laughs) it was a really, really hot year. I remember that. Favorite ballpark in the Sally League? The favorite, let me think here. Uh, and, and, and while you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of yeah. stall for you and, and explain that sometimes a favorite ballpark is because the ballpark itself, and sometimes it's because of the city, and sometimes it's because it's a nice big press box or because you don't have to hear the, the other broadcast or there's air conditioning in the press box. Yeah. So there's a lot of different reasons why something can be a favorite ballpark. And well, Char- Charleston, South Carolina was the best town, and, and they were in the same division as Albany, so we went there a lot, which was fun. I just got a chance to go back there this winter, or actually this fall, for the first time since then, doing the Charleston Classic uh, basketball tournament, and it was a lot of fun to to think about how much that city has changed. But uh, I think uh, Charleston was certainly the best town. Uh, there were there were some hot situations in the South. I remember I, I pretty much passed out in the Columbia, South Carolina press box one time, and the general manager of the team noticed. And that guy's struggling over there. And to his credit, he made sure his staff went and got me a fan. Because I was, I mean, I was close to passing out in the press box. It would, it would get that hot. It was, you know, look, it's always going to be hot in the South Atlantic League. And I think if you go back and look, 1995 was hotter than normal. But, uh, you know, none of, the, none of the ballparks in that league, as I remember, stood out as much. There were a lot of older ballparks in that league at that time. Uh, certainly when I moved to the Carolina League the next year, Durham's ballpark stood out you know it's a beautiful ballpark and it it had just been built at that point it felt like going to the big leagues when you did games in Durham when I was in the Carolina League so if my research is right one year in Albany and then that team gets sold and moved to Delmarva and now how do you get informed that you're out of a job yeah so about a month ago in the season my uh, general manager Mike Cardamus who's a great dude uh, he got us all together and he's like look man the team got sold. We're all going to have to get new gigs. And so uh, I got on the phone with my advisor from college, Tom Hedrick, a guy who literally wrote the book on sports broadcasting. And i like, Tom, I'm, I don't have a job. So he lined up a job at a radio station in Fairbury, Nebraska for me. So I had a job lined up. As soon as the season ended in Albany, literally a day later, I was driving back to the Midwest and 
getting ready to start this job in Fairbury, Nebraska. But uh, I was sending out baseball tapes, hoping to land a job somewhere. And it was, you know, the domino effect. Jim Rosenhaus got a job in Buffalo from Wilmington, Delaware. Bob McGilligot, who had been in Kinston, got the job in Wilmington because he considered that a step up from Kinston. And so the job in Kinston opened up. So I sent a, a tape to North Johnson, the general manager, and eventually he decided to hire me. I'm looking at the roster of Kinston and so many names come to mind because my first job out of college was with the Watertown Indians in upstate New York. And um, so that's the Indians organization. And so a lot of those players who I had in 96, guys like uh, John McDonald and uh, Danny Peoples and Dennis Conradi, Troy Kent, Louis Martinez, Paul Rigdon, all these guys. Oh, I remember all those guys. Yeah. Um, but tell me first about Johnny Mack. I loved him. Oh. The shortstop, he, he was just a magician with a glove. People that didn't see him play shortstop, how good was he? Yeah. Like, he was amazing defensively at shortstop. To this day, he made some of the best plays I think I've ever seen at shortstop when he was in Kinston. Didn't have the body type. You wouldn't think of him as being a sensational defensive shortstop. But I think maybe the best hands of any shortstop that I've seen – this side of Omar Vizquel, just incredible. He was amazing. Yeah, and then Marco Scudero was his double play partner one year, it looked like. Yeah, we were loaded. The, the Three of the four teams in Kenston were absolutely amazing. It's, it's shocking that none of those teams won a league title. No team I've ever worked for has won a league title, so perhaps it's me. I don't know. Uh, the only rings I've ever gotten were due to basketball. But uh, three of those four teams in Kenston were stacked. And, and really, some of the biggest memories I have from Kinston are from Russell Brannion, who, you know, would hit tape measure home runs. The power Russell Brannion possessed was really top of the scale. And so a lot of the memories are of home runs that he hit when he was there. But those teams were all really, really good. You also had a guy by the name of Heath Hayes. Now, Heath went to San Diego State when I did. We called him Homer and Heath in the Daily Aztec because of all his home runs. Apparently, he got converted to catcher, which I just realized um, yeah. last night. Um, I know it's kind of a random question. Most people don't care about Heath Hayes, but I do because I went to college with him. You got any uh, Heath Hayes memories? He was good. I remember that. Uh, did, he, did he get to the big leagues at all? I don't think so. I or think not. he came he just short. I would have you know, predicted that he would have played in the big leagues because he was good. He hit – I think he probably hit 20 or so home runs the year he was in Kinston. He, he was new to catching, as you mentioned, but I think he was coming along pretty well. Uh, but Cleveland was loaded at that point. They were so good. He's a good example of somebody, you know, that maybe with another organization would have had a better opportunity to get to the big leagues because, you know, if you're a guy that's not going to have a long major league career, it becomes about opportunity. And, uh, and I think, you know, Heath was probably just in an organization that had maybe a little bit too much talent. So four years in Kinston, at what point do you think, all right, not to be cocky, but I'm good at this. I can do this. I'm, I'm kind of a baseball lifer. Was there a time during the Kinston years or was it later when you realized I, I can do this? I probably thought that when I was in uh, junior college. <laughs> it's only recently that I realized maybe I'm not as good at this as I think I am. Um, so I, I, I thought I was good enough to do it. It was just, I couldn't understand why it was taking me so long to get another job. Uh, but I was a, you know, I was an idiot. Uh, I didn't realize there were a lot of other people out there that are pretty good as well. I probably didn't give 
other broadcasters as much credit. You know, the more I, I hear people, there's a lot of us that are really good, and, and not just in AAA. There are a lot of broadcasters in minor league baseball that, again, like Steve Selby, you can put them in the big leagues right now. Nobody is going to think anything about it. They'll just sound like they belong. And uh, that's what makes this business so tough because there are so many of us that, that do pretty good jobs. So with that in mind, was there ever a time, and we're going to start talking about Binghamton and, and Rochester as well, when you started to think, maybe it's just not going to happen. Maybe I got to try something else. Maybe it's, Maybe there's something else out there for me, or was it always like, nope, I'm I'm sticking with baseball, I'm sticking with broadcasting? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we always have those doubts, but I didn't know what else I was going to do. Now, after after the '99 season, uh, North gave me the opportunity for a couple of off seasons in Kenston to go back to my hometown and kind of hang out, and I, I would go back to my hometown and substitute teach. And one off season, I was delivering flowers for a, a floral company. But uh, after the 99 season, when I went back, my plan was, no, even if I don't get another job, I'm not going to go back to Kinston. Now, if it would have come down to it, I don't know that I actually would have fallen, uh, followed through and not returned to Kinston. But that's what I was telling myself. I don't know what I was going to do, but I was telling myself I was not going to go back to the Carolina League. But lo and behold, the job in Binghamton opened up and I got that job. So I never had to make that decision. What was it like delivering flowers on Valentine's Day? Uh, I don't, you know what? I didn't get to uh, Valentine's Day. I was already back in Kinston by the time Valentine's Day rolled around. But the, the, the job delivering flowers was pretty fun. I mean, I just drove around in a van all day listening to music and dropping flowers off. It was, it was really a pretty fun deal. Binghamton is about three hours north of New York City. Um, but nonetheless, I'm pretty sure the minor league baseball season was over. Maybe the Eastern League playoffs are going on. But what are your memories of 9-11? We were painting the bathrooms at the ballpark. Yeah. That's that the was ultimate minor league story. Yeah. It was, it was shortly after the season. We did not make the playoffs that year. And uh, our front office was painting the ballpark. And I was literally in one of the bathrooms there in the grandstand painting the wall when somebody came in and, and hey, Maybe we need to go check out the TV. Wow. Yeah. Where'd you live in Binghamton? I, uh, <laughs> I, I rented a house with two other guys, and we had an in-the-ground swimming pool in the backyard. Our total rent when I moved in was $600. And then the, a year after that, they bumped it up to 700 So I lived in a house with an in-the-ground swimming pool and I personally was paying like 230 bucks a month for rent. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty sweet. <laughs> that was pretty sweet. Yeah. What should I know about the Eastern League that I don't know about the Eastern League? I don't want to say anything that's going to get me in trouble with the state of Connecticut. <laughs> but, but I don't have a lot of fond memories of the state of Connecticut. Um, wow. You know, when I, when I got to that league, New Haven, Connecticut was still in the league. They played at old Yale field. That was a terrible place. Um, New Britain had a nice ballpark, but the broadcasting situation was bad. You stayed at a terrible hotel. Norwich was awful. It was just, and, and unfortunately they were in our division. So we went to Connecticut constantly to play those three teams. But it was a, it's also a long way to Portland, Maine from wherever you're going there from. But Portland is a great city. 
Portland was a lot of fun to go up there. But I enjoy my time in, in Binghamton. You know, a lot of people in New York State, and now I've lived here for a long time, look down their noses at Binghamton for some reason. I had a lot of fun the three years I was in Binghamton. I'd constantly tell people that. Now, some of it was probably because I had such a good living arrangement in Binghamton, but it's a, it's a fun town. I really enjoyed my time there, and I worked with some, some great people. Yeah, and, and the Mets were good during that time. Obviously, they went to the World Series in 2000, and they, had a, they were also a team that had a lot of excellent players in the minor leagues. I'm looking through the, the rosters of those, and it looked like you guys were stacked as well there. Who, who were some of the um, – well, how much of a trickle-down effect was there from the Mets going to the World Series in 2000 down to AA? Uh, not as much probably as there would be now, I don't think. Uh, I do remember Alex Escobar was the big prospect we had in, in 2000. And I remember that uh, they actually called him up from double A for some reason one time. I think Norfolk was on the road or they maybe had some thunderstorms in Norfolk. They wanted to call up a triple A outfielder, but for whatever reason, they couldn't call up whoever it was, Benny Agbayani or whoever. And so they told Alex Escobar to start driving to New York City, but don't tell anybody. Well, I made the mistake when one of the reporters, it might have been Scott Lauber, as a matter of fact, who now covers the Phillies. Scott Lauber was in Binghamton as our beat writer. And I think Scott said, why isn't Alex Escobar in the lineup today? I said, oh, well, he's going down to New York in case he needs to get called up. Well, they didn't need to call him up. They got a flight for that AAA outfielder. They called up Escobar and told him to turn around and drive back to Binghamton. And I got reamed by my boss for, for revealing that Alex was on his way to the big leagues because he'd never been to the big leagues before. It didn't seem like that big of a deal for me, to me, but, but that wasn't a, a cool thing apparently to do. But um, one of the things that stands out to me most of all is Brian Cole. Um, Brian Cole, I, I think, would have been a perennial major league all-star. And he came up to Binghamton – it was either the end of 2000 or end of 2001. And after a couple of weeks, it became evident this guy is the real deal. He loved to play. He had tremendous talent. Just a, a magnetic guy that everybody loved as a teammate. Again, I think he would have been a multi-year big league all-star. And then the year after that, he was going to be Binghamton's everyday center fielder, leadoff batter. And at the end of spring training, the Mets – let Brian drive back to his hometown in Mississippi. He was going to drop his car off and fly to Binghamton to start the season. And unfortunately, on his drive to Mississippi, he fell asleep at the wheel, wrecked his car, and died. There was, a, there, was a big, there was a big article in Sports Illustrated probably three or four years ago maybe about it. And C.C. Sabathia said, he's like, that guy was the best player in the minor leagues I ever played against. And so that was, you know, a really sad thing that stood out because I, to this day, I think that guy would have been a sensational major league player. And he was a great guy. He loved to play baseball. And that, I think that really affected, you know, hey, forget about, you know, you can't forget about it. It's terrible for his family, obviously. But that, that had a big impact on the Mets because he would have been a great player in New York. I'm convinced. Yeah, I had forgotten about him. As yeah. you're telling the story now, it's starting to come back to me. Um, and, and I'm glad that you shared that. Man, that's just. <sighs> yeah, it was rough. And yeah. then, I, you know, I can't remember how we handled it really at the ballpark, but that had to be a, it was obviously not a, a great way to begin the season when this guy that 
you know, th- that we were touting as going to be the big superstar in the team passes away in a, a car accident literally, you know, two or three days before the season was to start. It was, it was pretty terrible. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. How'd you get the job at Rochester? Well, the job what opened up. What domino effects happened for that one? The job opened up, and you know, during my time in the Carolina League, this is back when the – actually, it was the, the year that Rochester was transitioning from the Orioles to the Twins affiliation. But the trainer in Rochester for the previous two years, still from the Orioles days, was someone I had become friendly with from the Carolina League. He had been the trainer in Frederick. I was the radio guy in Rochester. We used to go out with a Frederick radio guy, Matt Noble. We became friends. And so Dave Walker's his name. He used to say nice things about me to Dan Mason, the general manager in Rochester. Dan has a sister that lives in Binghamton, so he would once or twice a year come down to games in Binghamton and would hang out with our front office sometimes after games. So I knew him a little bit, and through that and through Dave Walker telling him, hey, if you hire a radio guy, you need to hire the guy in Binghamton, that all really helped out. So it was a little bit of right place, right time, and uh, he wound up giving me a shot. What was it like the first time that you got on a plane to go to a game? Obviously, you had flown before, but after all those years of riding the bus, what was that first plane trip like? I don't know what it was like. I'll tell you this, man. I, I don't know how you guys in the PCL handle it because I cannot stand flying commercial. It's just such a, it's such a terrible experience from start to finish. It's just a nightmare in my opinion. Uh, so fortunately in our situation in Rochester, we only have to fly on, on three trips a year. Really? Uh, only three. That's it. And, and honestly, this in 2020, I think maybe it was going to be two trips or two and a half. I think we were going to bust back from Norfolk, maybe. Um, more and more teams in this league just bus. They get good buses and they just bus because issues arrive, uh, arise all the time with commercial airline. I don't know how more games in the PCL don't get postponed due to travel issues. It, it amazes me. Yeah, it is. It really is. The only place that we can bus from Albuquerque is El Paso. Other than that, we have to fly everywhere. And then once you're yeah. on the road, there's a few places we can bus from one city to the next. But the schedule, you would think that you would always play Sacramento and Fresno back-to-back, but that does not happen very often. Really? And so, you're, so it's – I mean, if, if we get three bus trips a year, we're happy. Wow. Yeah, it's the exact opposite for us. Now, obviously, there are some teams in this league that have to fly a lot more than that. For example, Gwinnett. I mean, Gwinnett, you run into the issues with Gwinnett that I'm sure PCL teams run into quite a bit where, like, we flew to Gwinnett one year, but our equipment is being driven down there in a van or whatever. Well, the van got caught up in some traffic somewhere and didn't arrive late, and so we had to start the game an hour late. Our guys had to wear uniforms and undergarments that had not been washed. It was a disgusting situation. But that happens, you know, once or twice a year with Gwinnett because they're kind of out on an island a little bit in this league. And, you know, I remember my first – I think my first year here, we were flying back from somewhere on the road and had some travel issues. And that was – it was a Friday night. The Red Wings were playing Columbus at the time. Columbus was still a Yankees affiliate. Jose Contreras was a big deal. He was making a rehab start for Columbus. And we were going to have, you know, 11,000 people that night at Frontier Field. Well, 
the flights get delayed. We finally land at about what would have been game time. So they had delayed the game at, at the ballpark. So we pull up in the buses right in front of the ballpark. There's, you know, 500 people standing right outside the ballpark and they create this gap for the team to walk through, to get into the stadium, push the game back an hour and then play ball. You know, that was, that was one of the travel memories I had from that first year. Yeah, we, um, I, I'm with you. I don't know how it doesn't happen more often than PCL. We, we seem like yeah. we have so many close calls where, where you're thinking that's going to happen. But, yeah, there's once or twice a year that, that, that something like that happens where you either don't think you're going to play or you arrive just as the game's about to start or a couple hours before or something like that. We've had a lot of those. Um, tell me about 2011 when you made your major league debut. How did, you, how did that come together? Who told you? Well, the, uh, the Twins had a game rained out in New York in April. And instead of playing a doubleheader, they decided to make it up on a mutual off day in September. So the Twins were going to fly in from Minnesota, play one game at Yankee Stadium, and then turn around and fly back to Minnesota uh, on what would have been an off day. And instead of having Dan Gladden make that trip for just the one game, the director of broadcasting for the Twins at the time, Kevin Smith, wanted to know if I would like to do the game. Sure. (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, I think I I paid for my flight down. I flew down there instead of driving, but I flew down the night before the game and then they put me up in the the Grand Hyatt there uh, and did the game the next day. It was an afternoon game. And then uh, that was it. It was, it was a blast, you know, and when I, when I found out probably a month or two beforehand that they were going to have me do that game, you know, I started looking at the schedule and I'm like, wow, you know, Mariano Rivera is going to be close to the all time save record by the time that game rolls around. That would be something else if I had a chance to broadcast that game. And lo and behold, sure enough, there he was in the cusp of, of setting the all time save record and he got it that game. Now, I wasn't on the call at the tail end, John Gordon was, but it worked out just like I kind of wondered if it would when I first found out I was doing the game. After all the times that you've interviewed players about going to the major leagues, you talk to them. When you were at Yankee Stadium that day, certainly there's a lot of players on the Twins that, that knew you from your time in Rochester. What were some of those conversations like with those guys where it's kind of the other way around? Well, you know, the unfortunate thing is uh, that it was a day game. And so, as you know, on day games, everything gets compressed. And especially on a day like this, where the Twins were flat, they flew in late the night before turn around, play a day game, and they're flying out. So they didn't get to the ballpark as early as they normally would have. It was almost the major league version of show and go. And so I didn't get as much of a chance. They, for, they didn't take batting practice, for example. You know, I didn't get a chance to stand around the cage and, and talk to guys. But I did, you know, see some people before the game in the clubhouse. They actually had me do the manager interview with Ron Gardenhire, whose son Toby was playing for us at that time in, in Rochester. So Gardy knew who I was. And, and so that's one of the things that really sticks out. Were you nervous? Or how long did it take before the butterflies went away and it became like any other game? Yeah, I, I would love to say that I wasn't nervous, but I, w- I was pretty nervous. And it really, didn't, I, it really didn't stop until the end of the game. And, and that's why I wish it would have been part of a series because I think I did an okay job in that game, but I think I would have done a much better job 
had there been a game two, but it was, you know, it was a one game deal just in and out. And, and so that's how it worked. But I think I did an okay job. Uh, but I was, I was a little bit nervous for sure. Did that game justify all the years in the minor leagues? Was it? Uh, I think getting hired to be a full-time broadcaster in the big league would justify it. One, one, <laughs> one, game, doesn't, one game doesn't justify it to me. No. I totally agree. No, with it's got to be a, it's got to be a full-time gig. It's not quite like a player. I don't think. Yeah, I can definitely relate. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. In 2015, Ballpark Digest named you the broadcaster of the year. I know you don't get a car. Do you get a plaque? Do you get a certificate? Do you get a free dinner? What, what, what do you get? Yeah, they got me uh, – there is a plaque. I don't know where it is, actually, but I should know where it is. Is that it? Yo, there it is. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, I have a plaque. It's really nice, as a matter of fact. I have Gary Larder to thank for that. Gary is our chairman of the board for the Red Wings. He does a great job, uh, a super person, huge baseball fan. Loves the Cleveland Indians, and Gary's an avid Red Wings radio listener, and and he's developed a, a relationship with the guys at Ballpark Digest, and he was always kind of pushing me for that award. So I have Gary to thank for that. Yeah, that, that's that's really cool. I mean, I probably shouldn't have made light of it, but that, tell me what that honor means to you. As we know, there's there's so many people who are really really good in this industry. Yeah, it's 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 nice, you know. I. I I'm thankful that I got it. Let's face it. It looks good on a resume too, right? A lot of people don't know any better about stuff like that. So it looks, it looks good. So that's always nice as well. So any publicity you get of that kind, I think is a positive. And, and I thought they did a really good job with it. Uh, had a nice article uh, accompanying the award. So it was good. Did you get another fill in too? Was it 2017? I've done some spring training games. Okay. Uh, even even before the game in New York, I had done an inning in Toronto one time uh, when the, the Twins were playing the Blue Jays. So I had been on the air in the big leagues even before 2011. But that's the, the only regular season full game that I've done. But I did – I've done several spring training big league games uh, most recently two or three years ago, and that, that was a really good experience too. That was a lot of fun. Do you save your rejection letters or your rejection emails? I save some of them. I wish I had started the the routine of saving all of them, but I just have not been very organized as far as doing that. But it it would be, I think, kind of interesting to look back and and see those now. But a lot of times, you know, especially as of probably two or three years ago, when I would get something like that, be you know, five or six swear words, rip it up, throw it away. So. Yeah, I kind of – I don't really do that much anymore. I ask because we've had a lot of time uh, these days, and so I was going through a whole bunch of old stuff, and apparently I used to keep my rejection letters from the early 90s or the mid-90s, and, um, and now I guess it's more emails or they just don't even yeah. like, respond to you. And so I just found it humorous that I, that I kept them, and, I was, and it made me wonder how many other people keep their rejection letters no matter what their industry is. Right. I think, you know, certain people would use it as uh, something to really motivate them. Certainly Michael Jordan, as we found out, would use that as a, a big motivating tactic. Uh, I'm more the, the type, unfortunately, where it would just depress me more than anything else, I think. So probably just getting rid of the evidence is better for my own mental health. All right. Uh, some big picture questions for you. When do uh -oh. you get most romantic about baseball? Uh, hmm. 
That's a good question. I, I don't really, I don't know. I, I like all of it, to be honest with you. Uh, as far, you know, I enjoy going on the road when I get up in the morning and just start my prep routine. I really, I'm missing that right now. Just the routine of, of being on the road, getting up in the morning and, and starting my prep work for the day. So there's not any one thing necessarily that, that brings it on for me. But I just miss all of it. And, and really specifically, the more I've thought about it is I, I just really miss broadcasting the game itself, which I think is really fun. And, and I think it's what I do best. And I feel probably most comfortable when I'm broadcasting a game. So there's really, for me, not just one thing that sticks out. You met Vince Scully in high school. Did you, did you ever get a chance to meet him again? Or is it yeah, I met him. Uh, I've met him one or two other times. I went to a Cardinals game, a Dodgers – was it a Dodgers game? I, I, yeah, it had to be. It was a Dodgers-Cardinals game in St. Louis uh, a few years after that and got up to the press box and, uh, and visited with, with him very, very briefly. But uh, I've never had any sort of, of uh, long conversation with him, unfortunately. Did you tell him about your story in high school and how you were out there? I think I did, yeah. I okay. think I did. Uh, I remember I, I had more of an interaction in that particular instance with Don Drysdale. Uh, I, I somehow wound up in their booth, but I think Vin was busy doing something, and it was more a three or four minute conversation with Don Drysdale, I believe. Approximately, how many years have you worked solo, and how many years have you worked with a partner? Well, most of my time overall has been solo, but when I got the job in Rochester in 2003 and for the next five or six seasons I did home games with Joe Altabelli who I didn't know a lot about before I got the job here but for those who aren't aware of of who Joe is he's considered Rochester's Mr. Baseball he uh he grew up in Detroit came up through the minor leagues with Cleveland and played parts of three years in the big leagues with Cleveland and Minnesota but then spent a number of years as a very good player in Rochester during that time, moved his family here, and then later managed the Red Wings for, uh, let's see, six years. And they were probably about as good of a six-year run as the franchise has ever had. Won a couple of league titles during that time. Managed a, a lot of great players in what was a tremendous area, era for the Orioles. And then later, he, man, he was the general manager for the Red Wings, helping them get the new stadium built. After that, he transitioned to doing radio broadcast, and it was really a lot of fun doing games with him. Uh, the other day was just his 88th birthday, as a matter of fact. And you know, as someone who really is into baseball history a lot, it was fun to talk to Joe about some of these guys that I've just read about or heard about, and he actually knew. You know, that was that was really really cool. Love that story. Love that story a lot. And That's... and, and he's a, a big reason uh, that the movie Bull Durham came to be really? because Joe Altabelli managed Ron Shelton for three or four years in the minor leagues. Ron Shelton wrote and direct the uh, wrote and directed the movie Bull Durham. He played for the Red Wings in 1971 and in 1963 or four, something like that, maybe 62. Anyway, the Orioles had roomed Joe Altabelli with Steve Dalkowski the left-handed flamethrower who just passed away. A lot of people consider him to be the hardest-throwing pitcher of all time. The Orioles had roomed Alto with Dalkowski because they thought Alto as a veteran would be able to settle Dalkowski down a little bit. It didn't work, obviously. 
But flash forward a few years and Alto's managing Ron Shelton and that bunch, and he would tell stories about Dalkowski. And that gave Shelton the idea for the Crash Davis Nuclear relationship that is at the center of Bull Durham. Oh my goodness, I love this. I never knew this. I thought I knew everything yeah. about Bull Durham, but I did not know this. So, it's really good, yeah. And yeah, we, we inducted Ron Shelton into the Red Wings Hall of Fame a couple of years ago, and he came to town for a couple of nights. In fact, we, we did a, a, a screening of the movie Bull Durham at the George Eastman house, and then he did a Q&A afterwards. It was really fascinating. I bet. Wow. Yeah, it was great. That's so cool. Uh, who would be your dream analyst? Whether you want to do baseball or basketball or both, who would be your dream analyst to work with? I had a great basketball analyst when I started doing games at Buffalo, Pete Lonergan, who was a former Division I basketball coach, and just he's a natural basketball analyst, just a cool dude. He was great. It would be really tough to top Pete as a partner in hoops. Uh, as far as baseball goes, uh, I'd I tell you what, a guy who's just kind of starting his broadcasting journey right now as a former player is Trevor Plouffe, Southern California guy. And Trevor played for us parts of, I don't know, four or five years in Rochester and is now doing some media broadcasting stuff. And I think he has a chance to be really, really good. So he brings a unique uh, perspective to it. And I think he has a very bright future as far as being an analyst in, in baseball broadcasting is concerned if he wants to continue to pursue that. Yeah, when, when, I, when I jotted down that question for you, I was thinking about my answer. And the first thing that usually comes to my mind is the guys who were the stars when I was growing up. And so, you know, I'm from the oh, yeah. Oakland area. And so I think of like, you know, doing a game with Dennis Eckersley, you know, or doing a game with Dave Stewart, you know, or, or somebody like that is, is the guys that immediately came to mind for me. You know, a, a guy that I think is now pretty good that I never thought would be good is Justin Morneau, who played in Rochester in 03 and 04 and was really quiet and just didn't seem like the type of person that would ever even maybe want to stay in baseball after he finished playing. But over the last couple of years now, Morneau has started to do more and more TV analyst work for the Twins, and he does a really good job. And quite frankly, I'm surprised by it, but he keeps getting better and better, and I think he's going to get – more and more opportunities to do bigger things if he decides to, t to keep pursuing it. You know, now that you mentioned him, we did a winter caravan here with the Rockies and I, and Morneau was one of the guys who came down and I, uh, it was like a town hall thing that I, that I hosted. And I remember that his answers were good. I remember like just yeah. like saying hello to him and I wasn't quite sure how much he was going to be able to talk and like how much I was, it was got hard to be to, to get stuff out of him. But then once people in the audience started asking questions, he was actually really good and insightful. Yeah, he gives you really good content. I, I'm again, I'm surprised by it. But he's he's a lot different than he was when he was a young ball player. He came through here when he was 21, 22 years old, and you know, liked to party off the field and that type of stuff as 21 and 22 year olds will. And a couple of years after, he had he had a difficult time kind of transitioning into the clubhouse atmosphere in the big leagues. And I think guys like Tory Hunter and players of that ilk really got to him when he was in the big leagues and he kind of changed his attitude and it, it really changed his whole career around. And he grew up tremendously from the time he was a, a triple a rookie to the time he was three or four years into his big league career. He really grew up a lot and became just a, a stud major league player. And unfortunately had the concussion issues, mm -hmm. which cut his career short. He might be, you know, maybe just wrapping up his career right now. 
Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's, that's really sad. I, I've been trying to think about other, other, other times that baseball stopped being played due to, to non-baseball things. You know, in the PCO, you know, we have some hurricanes every once in a while there'd be like floods in the Midwest. Is there any other times that baseball has stopped around you due to unforeseen circumstances that, that come to mind? Well, the, the first game I ever did in AAA with the Red Wings <laughs> was in Syracuse and a winter storm started to come through in the middle of the game and it started like freezing rain. And by the end of the game, guys' caps literally had ice on their, on their caps. And that precipitated, I think, six days in a row of us getting postponed due to bad weather. So I did my first AAA game and then we had six days off after that. Uh, but yeah, outside of weather situations, it's really tough for me to, to think of anything, uh, you know, or, or there have been one or two travel issues that have, have caused problems again, due to, due to flights, but yeah, nothing jumps out right away. Yeah. I mean, I remember nine 11, um, you know, I, we've had like other like small delays, like there was a warehouse fire in Fresno, just behind the ballpark. And we had to start like an hour or two late. And there were some fires that came to New Mexico and I wasn't here yet, but I've read about it where they turned a night game into a day game because the weather was, was going to get worse and, you know, um, travel related stuff. And yeah, I mean, uh, hurricanes that ended the PCL playoffs one year and different things like that. Um, we had yeah. a deal in liberal when I was doing the, the BJ's games just out of college, the big fireworks show in liberal was the 4th of July after a BJ's game. And we had a double header for some reason on the 4th of July and I'm pr- promoing the big fireworks display after the double header throughout game one. And probably in like the sixth inning of the, of the first game, the general manager of the team rushes into our press box, which was not really a press box, but rushes in there and he says, Hey Josh, stop promoting the fireworks show. I'm like, okay, what's the deal? Like somebody stole the fireworks. No, so the, the fireworks had been in like the clubhouse area and somebody stole them. So the big fire, and we had a, I mean, a huge crowd that night because the city's fireworks show was going to happen after the game, but some kids stole the fireworks and Southwest Kansas is extremely flat. Like literally the, the County directly North of liberal, I think, and I'm not sure how they figure this out, but it's the flattest County in America. But these guys, whoever stole the fireworks, drove, you know, 20 miles outside of town somewhere and started shooting off these fireworks. Well, it was pretty easy for the Seward County Sheriff's Department to, to find them when they did that, you know. So they got busted. But, yeah, the, the town's 4th of July fireworks display was stolen during the doubleheader. I can only imagine the poor public address announcer yeah. saying this to the crowd and then the booing that must have taken place. Yeah, it was a nightmare. That was. <laughs> That was a mess. It was, they used to play their games at this old uh, county fairgrounds racetrack. Like they would have dirt. The, the, the field was in the middle of a dirt stock car track. So it was literally like 100, 120 feet from home plate to the backstop. So guys would score from second base on wild pitches all the time. But the, the booth, the press box, looked like one of those roadside fireworks stands just perched on top of the roof. And it was frightening up there because every day in liberal, the wind blows like 20, 30 miles an hour. You could literally feel the thing shake. In fact, one time on an off day, this press box blew off the roof and landed on the stock car track. 
But I was doing a game there one time, and there weren't windows. There were just these big boards that covered up the blank space where the window would be. So when you got there to do a game, you'd unlatch the bottom of the board, pull it up, and latch it on the roof. So I'm doing a game, and the front hinges had rusted out. They broke in the middle of an inning, and the board swings down and hit me right in the head while I'm broadcasting the game. <laughs> Lucky it didn't knock me out. Ripped my headset off. It was, you know, just that type of stuff would happen all the time. It was crazy. <sighs> that's, that's wild. That's, yeah. I always worry about that in Sacramento. I, I, I look up a lot. Sacramento's got – it's like that, but it's not rusted. Sacramento's got a great ballpark. But I look up there a lot during games just, just wondering, wondering, you know, is, is this where it's going to end, you know, right in the middle of a broadcast, this thing breaks. And, well, really? he had a good run, but he got, he got killed by, yeah. <laughs> by the window in the press box. I almost had my hand taken off by the windows in Norfolk a couple of years ago. Please they had tell these that super, story. Well, they just had these super heavy windows that uh, the latch on them had broken. And so in my case, I would literally have to stand on the table and use my legs to lift up the window. And then they had a wooden stick that you would wedge between the bottom of the window and the, the bottom of it to keep the window open. And then at the end of the game, you'd pull that stick out and, and make sure that the window didn't hit your hand or whatever when it slammed back down. And so I finished a game one night, pulled that stick out. The window comes down like a guillotine. And I did not have my laptop out of the way enough. And it smashed my laptop and broke it. The Norfolk Tide should have paid for that, by the I way. Agree. I, I, I They did not. But uh, I probably didn't make as much of a deal out of that as I should have. How'd you call that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With a lot of F words. I guarantee it. <laughs> All right, Josh, that's probably a good way to end it. But, uh, hey, this was really fun. I'm glad that Tim Haggerty recommended you. Um, you know, I feel a connection to anyone whose name is Josh uh, who yeah. broadcasts games. Um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed all the stories. This was fun. Hey, thanks for having me. Hopefully we'll have some uh, games to call at some point uh, before we do this again. <laughs> Absolutely. That was Josh Wetzel, and this is Life Around the Seams.